Would you open a Bible with me back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? And if you would do the favor to me of marking your Bible there, putting a little piece of paper there, 1 Thessalonians 5, that is where we will begin this evening, and that is where we will end this evening. Thank you for being here. I hope you've had a good day. And in many ways, I wish that this was not my topic this evening. It is not a pleasant topic to think about, to prepare for, to preach. But my responsibility, as I understand it, is to share the whole counsel of God. To represent God using His Word as He represents Himself. And we cannot do that without talking about our our topic this evening. It may not be evident at first, but it absolutely fits in with our focal point for the year. In a variety of ways, we are talking about finishing what was started. As hard as it is, at least for me to believe, this is our last Sunday of the first quarter of this year. And if you've been paying attention, you know that in a wide variety of ways, in this quarter, kind of our sub-theme has been what was started. Lord willing, next quarter we'll talk about some steps that we have to take in order to finish what was started, but in order to see the entire landscape of what our Lord started, we have to talk about hell. And my aim this evening really is just to try in... 30, 35 minutes or so to notice with you how often God talks about this. We we cannot possibly talk about every passage, even that we will reference this evening, in detail. It's one of the reasons we wanted to make sure you have those little note cards so that you can go back and, and read these passages in their full context. But I hope that one of the functions of our time together in God's Word will be just how often God talks about hell. And there isn't anything flippant about it. There isn't anything funny about it. There isn't anything where in any way, shape, or form we ought to use it to describe a hot summer day. Or how frustrated we are. I appreciated how, how Larry got us started this evening by reminding us how serious, Darren in his prayer, how, how sobering this is. And in many ways, it goes back to what was started. And so if I could just very, very briefly get you thinking along those lines that this is not something you started or, or, or I started. No, God started a 
fleeting measure of days for me and for you. That language comes poetically to us from Psalm 39 in verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end. I have an end on my time on this earth, and so do you. And when we think about that, we can easily think now, okay, I have a a measure of my days, and and that's not very long in in the grand scheme of things. In fact, it, it makes me think, it makes you think perhaps this evening, how fleeting we are. That is not a product of anything other than our Creator started this. A fleeting measure of our days. And spirits that will return to the God who gave them. We can read poetically in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 about what it is like to age in our physical bodies. And and that description ends in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 with the dust eventually returns to the earth as it was. But you're more than a body. I'm more than a body. You have a God-given spirit. And that spirit is going to return to the God who gave it. But God also started a place. A prepared place for those who cling to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And so in John chapter 14, in the very shadow of the cross, he, he speaks with those closest followers and encourages them not to let their hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verse 3, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. It's in this discussion where... He describes himself as the way to this place. The truth in fleshly form about this place. The life that is available in this place even after the dust of our bodies returns to the earth as it was. But that's not all that our Creator reveals. He also reveals a place prepared for that ancient foe that we sung about this evening. A place prepared for the devil and his angels. And and we'll come back to this description, but for right now, what I, I want you to see is this is what God started. Eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But if your Bible is open there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'd encourage you to use this as an anchor point throughout our entire time together. We'll come back and read all of verse 9 in just a moment. But I want you to see in your Bible, in the first few words of that verse, God has not destined us for wrath. Now we will hear, we will see that some 
will inherit this place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. But that is not the heart of God for you. That is not what he wants. That is not his desire for you or for anyone. This place was prepared for the devil and his angels. But God has made you and he's made me and he's made all of humanity a promise. That he will not overlook evil. Evil is real. Evil is awful. And God is not going to overlook it. He promises. Now, in the meantime, He speaks to us, His children, about how we are to live in a world where evil is real. One such passage, Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Evil is real. And God feels more strongly about it than you and I can possibly imagine with our human brains and we're being told that the wrath of God will take care of evil it is written vengeance is mine I will repay promises the Lord of heaven and earth you and me to the contrary if your enemy is hungry Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You, me, Christians of all eras, these are our marching orders. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God made a promise. He will not overlook evil. But a fixed day has also been started. On which God will judge the world in righteousness. Paul went to the great city of Athens. And because his charge was to proclaim the whole counsel of God. He stood in a city full of idolaters. And talked to them about a God that they did not know. But wanted to make sure they understood the times of ignorance This God, the one God, overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. If you and I never talk about that day, we're not doing anyone any favors. If you and I don't help our children and our grandchildren prepare as if that day is real, we're not doing them any favors. We're certainly not sharing with them the whole counsel of God. A day has been fixed on which He will judge the world in righteousness. However this world chooses over the course of time and throughout the scope of human cultures to define what is right, well, we've got the 
leeway to do that amongst ourselves for a little while. But our definitions do not change Him. Our compromises do not somehow undermine what He has defined from the very beginning as right. Which means one of the greatest tasks of my life and of your life is learning what He says is right and aligning ourselves with what is right and standing on what is right and unashamedly sharing what is right. Why? Because a day has been fixed on which He's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed and He's given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. You cannot in good conscience, for good reason, believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and not believe in coming judgment. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Paul went to Caesarea and stood before a Roman official and said, listen, a resurrection is coming of both the just and the unjust. It is not simply for those who choose to acknowledge God and and base their lives on Him. Everyone is going to come out of the grave. And some will be told, Depart. We hear Jesus say it in Matthew 7. We hear him reiterate it in Matthew chapter 25. Humanity will be separated, some on the right, some on the left, and those on the left will be told, depart. You cursed. Depart from me into... You remember what was started? The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why would anyone be told to depart from God? Because they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's how Paul reasons as he writes to people in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. In Ephesians 5 and verse 3, he says, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this. Lots of things that the Apostle Paul wasn't Sure about, right? Lots of people who lived in Ephesus then, who live all over the world this evening, we're we're not sure of things. But by the Spirit of the Almighty God, Paul says, you may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. They will be told to... Depart. In fact, the verb that is used several times in the Gospels and the New Testament is cast or thrown. Where are they cast? 
The answer of the Son of God is into hell. Luke chapter 12. 2 Peter chapter 2. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them. Cast them where? Cast them into hell. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, speaks of being thrown into hell. Now the, the question is, what can we know about that? And let's not take it for granted that the only way any of us can know anything about that is if the one who started it reveals it to us. Interestingly, Jesus described and warned about the hell of fire more than anyone in the Bible. And so to Roger's point from this morning, what matters to God? Well, if it matters to God that we listen to His Son, His Son spoke about this more than anyone. And He used the Greek word, Gehenna. To you and me, that sounds ominous, and we're not exactly sure what, what it's talking about. But as I understand it, it is a, a compound word of valley and hinna, or, or hinnom. And we don't have to do a whole lot of digging before we start recognizing with modern-day tools that this shows up in both the Old and the New Testaments. In fact, it, it is a a ravine, a, a deep valley on the south side of Jerusalem. We, we hear about it, for instance, in Joshua chapter 15 and verse 8, that the boundary goes up by the valley of the son of Hinnom at the southern shoulder of the Jebusite, that is, Jerusalem. And on our, our, our picture from modern times, it it almost looks like a golf course. I mean, that's not all that bad, is it? But it did not look like that in the days of the Israelites. There was a king in Judah who brought multiple sons into this valley and offered them as human sacrifices to so-called gods. In fact, by the time we read in Jeremiah, it, it's not just the king, but it's multiple people in Jerusalem. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. If you're following along with our daily Bible reading, you recently read about Josiah, the grandson of Manasseh, and how Josiah, as he became king at a, a very young age, basically turned this into a, a garbage dump. Everybody knew what, what went on in this valley, and so when Josiah came into power, he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. 
And for a very long time, this is where you brought your trash. You're, you're living in Jerusalem, no big blue truck is driving to the foot of your driveway and just going to uh, very easily pick up with a mechanical arm your, your, your trash can and dump it and then, you know, put it right back down and maybe even sometimes get the lid closed in case it rains, right? Nobody's doing that in, in ancient Jerusalem. No, you, you carry your trash outside of the city. Well, where are we going to carry it? We're going we're gonna to carry it to the south side into this deep ravine and, okay, in order to get rid of it, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to burn it. And for centuries, that's what happens in Gehenna. And Jesus picks up on that and, in fact, uses that, for instance, in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22, where he warns, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He says it again in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 30. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into, into Gehenna, into hell. In Matthew chapter 10 verse 28, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Remember, you're more than a body and, and when you're body goes back to the dust, your spirit is going to return to the God who gave it. And so, rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in, in hell, in Gehenna. In Matthew 18 and verse 8, it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into, listen to this language, from someone eat eternally qualified to tell us what was started. Started for the devil and his angels. But he knows this reality. And he's saying, it would be better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. He talks about it all over the place. In Mark chapter 9, verse 47, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where? Listen to this. Especially in light of knowing what that valley was on the outside of Jerusalem. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Larry started off our time together in James chapter 3 and verse 6, where it gets really, really personal. I mean, what's more personal than your tongue? The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. You remember who defines what's right? The tongue is set among our members. Who set that member? Our Creator. Does the one who gave me the tongue have the right to warn me about right and wrong use of it? Of course He does. 
This can stain my whole body. It can set on fire the entire course of my life. And the profoundly alarming warning is it is set on fire by hell. And so at the very end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible is full of this sword of imagery. In fact, a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Jesus described and warned about the hell of fire more than anyone in the Bible. And he described it in a variety of ways. A, a place of eternal, unquenchable fire. He described it as a place of gloomy, utter darkness. In Matthew 25 and verse 30, he described it as outer darkness. And I want you to notice how he describes it. It's not simply a, an internal experience. It's not simply a, a mindset. It is a place. A place that was started for the devil and his angels. But in that place, the Son of God promises there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Peter, who walked with the Lord for three years and then was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to deliver, for instance, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, he, he speaks of angels, how God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. But one of the reasons we need to read books like 2 Peter is, it's not just angels. He's talking about false prophets, false teachers, how for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. It's not just Peter, it's it's Jude, half-brother of the Lord, who points us to the angels. God has kept them, angels who did not respect their God-prescribed bounds, He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. But the reason why you and I need to read books like Jude is, it's not just the angels. It's People, in verse 13, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It is a place of eternal unquenchable fire, a place of gloomy utter darkness. It is a place of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. If you have your Bibles open there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you might have to turn a page. We're going to come back there in just a moment. Look at the next page, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, speaking once again of, of people. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And the glory 
of his mind. Paul writes to those in, in Philippi, those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Once again, in the last book of the Bible, this is described as the second death. If, if physical death is the separation of my body from my spirit, remember the body returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it and, and the word that God used, started, gave to us to describe that process is, is death. Well, the second death is separation from the presence of God and His glory for eternity. Hell is awful. And maybe the question that rattles around in our brains is, well, why? Why would God ever start such a place? And if I could suggest to you, the, the answer is, is not complicated. Clearly, hell is awful. But ladies and gentlemen, hell is awful because sin is awful. In fact, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me back to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Let me, let me try and just use one passage to, to show you that. If I could somehow find where God tells me these are the sorts of things I hate. And not in the, uh, the well, I, I hate Brussels sprouts sort of sense, but the things that he finds, this perfect eternal, holy, spotless, awesome being. What he finds abominable. That, that sword of hatred. It's just one instance of it. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates. Hell is Awful, And the reason it is awful is because these things are awful. Seven things that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes that look down on fellow image bearers of God. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make Haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. Hell is awful. But the reason it is awful is because sin is awful. It's not an oopsie-daisy. It's not a... Breakdown in judgment, it's not a, well, all that not very serious sort of mistake. Sin is awful. Evil is awful. Treason against the king of the universe is 
awful. And I want you to hear this evening that every single sin will be addressed. Every single sin. Not big sin, little sin, dark sin, light sin, gray sin. Every single sin is going to be paid. And it will be paid either in hell or for me, for you, on the cross of Jesus Christ. When we decide we're, we're not interested in thinking about things like hell, we are minimizing the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul, the same Apostle Paul who spoke of eternal unquenchable fire, a place of gloomy, utter darkness, a place of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That same Apostle Paul has news for us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What's he mean by that? Keep your hand there and just turn a page or two before this to Romans chapter 2 and verse 2 where Paul reaches this conclusion. Whoever we're talking about, whatever we're talking about, Romans 2 verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. What sort of things? It's all over Romans chapter 1. All sort of evil, awful sin. He says in verse 4, Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works. To those who, by patience, in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. But here's the news. While we were still weak at the right time, God's own son died for us, for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we deserved hell. Why? Because sin is awful. But Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood. What's that mean? What are we saved from? If we never talk about His wrath, we are cheapening His amazing grace that has saved us from that wrath. God put forward His own Son as the sacrifice for the wrath 
we deserve. His blood was shed as a sacrifice for the wrath. I deserve. Do you believe that is the question that is being raised in Romans chapter 3. This was to show God's righteousness. God doesn't laugh at sin. God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. I can't buy God off when it comes to my sin. Every single sin is going to be paid for. Either in hell or by the sacrifice of His own Son. This was to show, verse 26, His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just. Every sin is going to be paid for one way or another. And the justifier, the rescuer of those who have faith in Christ. And that sacrifice continues to be made available to all. This is a 2,000-year-old letter, but this news is just as relevant this evening as it's ever been. Now, it's spoken in, in terms of a warning. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, I've turned my back on the one sacrifice for the wrath that I deserve. And if I trample that sacrifice on my way to living in whatever way I want to live, I will never find another one. I've got to turn around and go back to that sacrifice because without it, all that I can expect is fearful judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. But if we listen to the warning humbly and reverently, what we do here is there is a sacrifice for sins. His name is Jesus. And where I ask you to mark your Bibles in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where I told you we would end this evening. This Jesus has done everything necessary in order for us to live with Him for eternity. Remember, what did God start? He started a fleeting measure of our days. He started this process whereby our spirits will return to the God who gave them. And he prepared a place for those who cling to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And so Paul is able to say, listen, hell is real. And hell is close. Because your time on earth is fleeting. And hell is awful because sin is awful. But hell is avoidable because God's grace is amazing. He's not destined us for wrath. That's not what he wants for me. That's not what He wants for you. He wants us. He has done everything necessary in order for us to obtain salvation through this Lord. Jesus Christ who died for me, who died for you so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. The only thing standing in the way is me. Will I humble myself beneath His mighty hand? 
Will I honor him as my creator? Will I listen and respect his definition of what is right? Will I heed his warnings? Will I look to Jesus as the way, the truth, the life? As we're going to sing together in just a moment, who will follow Jesus? This is not where Jesus is headed. Jesus helps us to be heaven-bound. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Just as you were doing. It is absolutely amazing to me that the very people who crucified the Son of God, when they came face to face with how awful what they had done really was, and they asked, what shall we do? They were not told, you are on the highway to hell. That's not what they were told. Everything that was necessary in order for them to be forgiven of killing the Son of God had been accomplished. His grave was empty. He is this evening at the Father's right hand. And evil continues to be very real for a little while. Sin continues to be awful for a little while. But God has prepared a place where sin will be paid for. Those people were told to turn and be baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of their sins. And they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter said this promise is for all. All that the Lord our God is calling to himself. How amazing that even this evening that call continues to echo all over the world. Who will follow Jesus? God's heart for you is clear. And if you this evening need to get out of your own way. And cling to him as the way, the truth, and the life. And we can be of some help. Would you let us know how we can help you? By coming to the front while we stand and sing together.